thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Give us a call right now if you want to put a question to Chris for the next 30 minutes. Good morning, Chris. Hey, good morning. Always sad when someone has passed on who has done amazing things in the world, Chris. But at the same time, Stephen Hawking had lived a remarkable life in so many ways, not just as a scientist, but uh, in all sorts of other respects as well. And I think um, it's wonderful that we should start the show first and foremost by paying a tribute to him. Yeah, we, we absolutely should. And the reason that a lot of the science that is in common parlance, including on this program, things like black holes, how the universe is changing and expanding and where the universe came from, the reason, part of the reason that it's so popular and that people understand the amount that we do, even though there's a huge amount still to understand, is because of the efforts of Stephen Hawking. Because right from the very early stage when he did his PhD on how black holes worked, this was really cutting-edge stuff. People just weren't able to grapple with this, and he did, and he turned into something tractable and tangible, something that mere mortals like the rest of us could understand and have some insight into, things which are enormously complicated and it's very very difficult to be good at popularizing science it's even more difficult to be very good at science and very good at popularizing it and it's very rare yes. to find somebody who can do both of those things with such a plomb so it is it is a massive loss but on the other hand Stephen Hawking um despite battling motor neurone disease which was some kind of very atypical form of, of uh, motor neurone disease because most people who get this sort of condition that he suffered with get it when they're in their 60s and 70s and then they survive maybe a few years he succumbed to this when he was in his 20s and then survived his entire life with it but actually had a very rich life despite and in spite of and perhaps because of it because many people are saying that it, it gave him certain things which he wouldn't have had insights into and a certain energy and drive and a motivation which he might not have had in the same way if he hadn't felt that his time perpetually was running out because he has said that you know right back in the early days I have to get on and do this because if I don't I might not be here to realize what I, I think I'm capable of realizing so it was a bit of a poison chalice but um, a wonderful person and someone I've had the privilege actually to, to live in the same city as. I haven't met yes. Stephen Hawking uh, apart from to pass him in the street occasionally. But um, it, it, it is a, a real sad week. But on the other hand, uh, we should be celebrating as well because, you know, wonderful people who give us wonderful things and make the world wonderful around us. And, and he was certainly one of them. Absolutely. I remember passing him once in the COVID market in Oxford myself. And you oh, my God, there's that famous person. And he sort of lose it for a couple of seconds. Uh, is that he what he said when he saw you? <laughs> <laughs> when when he was diagnosed, Chris, um, I think he was told that he had a couple of years to live at most. Do we understand from a science point of view why he bucked that uh, prediction? No. The disease that uh, he, he had some form of is a form of motor neurone disease. What this means is that the cells which are in your spinal cord that connect to your muscles and send messages from the spinal cord to muscles telling them to move they die. There are also cells in the brain that control how the body moves and they connect to those cells down in the spinal cord and make them uh, tell the muscles to move. They also die. Uh, 
there are a range of reasons why this can happen. There are inherited forms of this condition. There are also some what we call idiopathic forms. Most of them are, where people just develop this condition and we haven't yet worked out exactly why. We think it's something to do with cells experiencing stress. So when a cell is placed under load, metabolic load, if it's not well set up to cope with that, then it starts to make various chemicals that damage the cell. And in people who have motor neuron disease, this seems to lead to the death of their motor neurons. And this robs them of the ability to move. They have no voluntary movement. That's what happened to Stephen Hawking. We don't understand why it happened so early in him and, and how he managed to stay well for so long. He probably did stay so well for so long because he got it early and had very good coping mechanisms, was very well looked after because the standard of care he received was excellent and he's never been short of saying thank you to the NHS in England, which um, he was an enormous staunch supporter of, which I think helped him a lot as well. Um, but, but also I think he had ferocious determination and that cannot be understated how important that is as well, the will to get on and do things and not let anything hold you back. George, good morning to you. What is your question? Hi, yes, thank you for the, uh, the opportunity. I want to ask, my son suffers from extreme eczema. And, uh, you know, all the, uh, the specialists that we go to, uh, apart from the cortisone that obviously is not, uh, uh, not frequently used, it's just green. I'm sure there should be some cutting-edge technology or research or understanding of this uh, condition that would make uh, sufferers' uh, lives a little bit better. Chris, do we understand anything about eczema beyond uh, how incredibly socially and otherwise debilitating it can be for people? Yeah, hi, George. I'm, I'm really sorry to hear about the situation. And you have my sympathy because my own daughter gets a bit of eczema, and I know it's a miserable thing. Uh, the proper name for it is, um, is a dermatitis, and it's an acute dermatitis, which can become a chronic dermatitis, derm as in skin, titus as in inflammation. Our understanding of this is it's some kind of allergic response. What we think happens is that the skin, which is normally a barrier to allergens and other irritants getting through the skin, breaks down. So if you have a small injury to the skin or you allow things through that barrier, which are irritants, they wind up the skin, they attract the immune system and they also, because of the breach in the skin's defences, allow things in that you're allergic to. This then further winds up the immune system and the immune system then damages the skin a bit more and it becomes a vicious cycle where the irritated damaged skin allows more allergen to come in and the allergen then inflames the skin more which encourages the skin to be damaged more. One of the mainstays of treatment therefore is to prevent the breakdown in the protective barrier of the skin and this is where these emollient creams come in. Dermatologists are very fond of saying to you put on these emollients, these oily creams which act as a nice thick smooth layer over the surface of the skin they push moisture into the skin and they stop it breaking down in the first place and th this is actually very important for maintaining the, the defensive barrier of the skin and stopping the allergens getting in the other second line thing that we do is to then try and manipulate the immune system a bit because dermatitis eczema is an immune response therefore if you damp down the immune system not chronically necessarily but certainly enough to stop it causing damage to the skin wherever there's an inflamed patch of skin then you can gain control of the disease and then the inflammation goes away the skin forms a new intact barrier and then as long as you keep that intact it should keep the eczema at bay some people get very very severe eczema though and and i'm very very sorry for them and probably there's something that they're very exquisitely sensitive to or their immune system is in overdrive for some reason and in these people it can be very very hard to control and even stronger forms of immunosuppression are sometimes needed but we try to do 
the least we can to get the maximum control over the disease because all interventions have side effects and we want to maximise the benefits and minimise the side effects because disabling your immune system, it's there for a reason and if we dismantle the immune system we make a person at risk of other problems so we want to do the least of that and maximise the benefit with the disease and that's where these emollient creams are so good because they're very cheap, very easy to use, very safe, very few side effects but they have very good therapeutic value. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. 20 minutes after 10. John, good morning. You've got a nice question for us. Hi. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Chris. Uh, Chris, I was wondering when Britain was voting to leave the European Union, all of a sudden a new one came out, which was Brexit. Now, I was wondering with the word Brexit and Brexit and Brexit on the news, the media, do you think that could have swayed people to vote? to exit the European Union? Good question. I don't know if it's more psychology than the hard sciences, but Chris? It's certainly an interesting question. Did, d- does the wording make a difference? And there have been a number of debates about this because um, people are saying that the way that the vote was put to the British public may also have skewed things. Should Britain leave the European Union? Yes or no? And of course, there's more to it than just whether or not you leave a union. There's all the other repercussions and implications that people are now discovering. So um, I, I suspect that actually there is a huge amount to this psychology. And you're, you're, it's, it's interesting that you've highlighted this and the word exit. <laughs> uh, probably it's quite an active word. It sort of says escape. It sort of says salvation. And we know that when you plant a seed of a, a germ of an idea psychologically using a certain word in someone's mind, you do then get these ramifications and knock-on effects. It, it stimulates all of the other connected thought processes in, in a person's mind. So, yes, there is a possibility that the wording has influenced people, but then that's not new. Politicians have been doing that for absolutely years, haven't they, of course? <laughs> that's true. Let's go to Twitter, and he has a similar kind of question, but this is a biological version of it. Someone wants to know, Chris, why is it when you're about to eat something that is, say, for example, very sour, before you've even put it in your mouth, you already get the tingling (laughs) sensation. I've been wanting to ask you this for a long time. Well, it's anticipation. Um, You have learned that a certain flavor or a certain foodstuff produces a certain reaction in your mouth. So you brace yourself for it. It's a bit like when a doctor comes to you with a needle. If you've had an injection in the past, you know, well, this, this is going to hurt maybe a little tiny bit and you you will notice people they will involuntarily brace they wince they screw their eyes up they look away because they know that it might be something that's going to be unpleasant now if you if you do this the first time to a newborn baby or a young child they're really interested in what the doctor's doing and they're perfectly happy to cooperate until they go oh that feels a bit uncomfortable and then the next time they're not so easily convinced so it's the same with food and we're really really sensitive to what we put in our mouths because obviously uh, you could put the wrong thing in your mouth and it could have fatal consequences. And so we learn very rapidly to associate smells and tastes with certain outcomes. And I suspect that's what's going on. You pick up that piece of lime and you think, yeah, I, I know I quite like this, but I also know it's going to be extremely, extremely tart. Uh, so I'm going to wince as I bite into it. Candace, welcome to the show. Thank you for your patience. What's your question? Hi, um, I just wanted to find out during sexual intercourse, when a male ejaculates into a female, does her testosterone levels increase? Okay, Chris. Interesting one. The answer is yes, it does. Women do have testosterone, 
um, it's not just men that have testosterone. Women make testosterone. They also make androgenic hormones a bit like testosterone, but the levels in women are lower than they are in a man. And yes, men's fluids do contain hormones. They contain some testosterone. They also contain prostaglandins and other things. And these have effects on the woman's body because they encourage muscle contraction, for example, which is what encourages the sperm to move up inside the woman and find the egg so it can fertilise it. Equally, it's not a one-way street. It's a two-way street because oestrogen from the women's bits get on to the men's bits and so men also pick up a bit of oestrogen from close contact with their partner. And there have also been cases actually, there have been some case reports of people who wear these patches because you can have for instance a testosterone patch if you're a man you have low testosterone levels you can have a testosterone patch and I did read one case report where a couple snuggled up in bed for an extended period of time over a number of days and weeks and the man was wearing a testosterone patch he was snuggling up close to the lady and some of the testosterone was going out of the patch and into the lady um, and pushing up her levels because she began to get some, some androgenic effects, like a bit of, bit of hair growth, and, uh, and her, her voice oh, wow. went really deep. Um, I don't know if that's a bit <laughs> apocryphal, but the answer to the question is, yes, there is an exchange, not just of body fluids, but of hormones and other signals too. Interesting question. That is a very interesting question. Jason, um, go ahead. What, what did you like to answer? Hi guys, um, I've got a I've got a, a question on evolution. What I wanted to know was that if humans um, if if humans found it beneficial to evolve um, high levels of emotional intelligence, yes. Why did other primates not find that beneficial? Why are we the only ones with high levels of emotional intelligence, while uh, let's say um, apes and monkeys are still on a low level of intelligence compared to us. Okay, thanks for that question, Jason. An interesting assumption being made there. I wonder what Chris is going to say. Well, first of all, remember that we evolved from a common ancestor with the apes, which are around today. So there are chimpanzees and bonobos, and about six million years ago or so, they had an ancestor that they shared with us. So you can imagine this is like the root, and coming off of there is this radiation like uh, from from your wrist into your hand and the fingers going out you've got on one finger that's us then you've got another finger is chimps and bonobos but remember there was a whole tapestry of early human ancestors out there around at the same time so there were the ones that uh, um South Africa is very famous for things like Australopithecines, remains of which have been found early and other forms of Homo, which were around at that time. So there were lots of different experiments being done by nature. Many of these individuals would have had all kinds of quite developed intelligences. Others wouldn't. So nature was doing just a giant experiment. And chimpanzees, very successful. Bonobos, very successful. Orangs, very successful. As long as humans don't come along and mess up their environment. Humans, very successful. But to be successful, you don't just judge success by emotional intelligence and whether or not you can work an iPad. You judge intelligence by whether or not you can thrive, you can take over an environment, be successful, live healthily and reproduce and pass your genes on to the next generation. So many people would say these animals have been around for millions of years or at least evolving for millions of years. That's pretty that's a pretty good success story and there are other animals that also have emotional intelligence too like elephants and dolphins we know that they're they're pretty insightful and even your dog your dog uh, knows what you're thinking and changes its behavior according to your mood we've got evidence that proves that and the same is true the owner responds to the dog in the same way so it's not just us that have this privileged position yeah, I want to ask a small little follow-up question, if I may, from the peanut gallery, Chris. I was going to ask you exactly, isn't there surely a difference between consciousness 
and emotional intelligence and many other animals in the animal kingdom who are not human do have emotional intelligence what is unique about us and please tell me if this is actually itself factually wrong is of course that we can behave deliberately reflectively that capacity well people used to think that uh, it was just humans that had the ability to put themselves into another individual's shoes but then they began to do experiments that suggested that, in fact, other animals can recognise their own reflection, which means that they understand what they look like and they understand themselves to be distinct from others, and they can plan ahead. One very nice example of this, not just in, in the mammalian uh, lineage, but in uh, the birds. Nikki Clayton, who's a researcher at the University of Cambridge, has done amazing studies with rooks and jays. So these are members of the crow or corvid family. These animals plan for the future. And what she's able to show with these crows is that if you feed them some food, they steal off each other. They also watch each other and they hide food. And what she was able to show is that they, they, they go and hide food and they, if another bird is watching them, they pretend to hide the food in one place and then really hide it in another. Or they, they hide the food in one place and if they know they were being watched when they hid it, they go back later, dig it up, move it when no one's watching them because they have therefore realised that if I'm being watched, I might have my food stolen. That is quite high-level thinking because it shows that they're actually working out what someone else might do in their position with the knowledge they have. And that's a number of steps forward on the chess game, which we used to think that that ability was uniquely human. Clearly, if birds are doing this, it's not. We're going to leave it there, Chris. Fascinating set of questions this week. Thanks so much. Thank you, Eusebius. Thanks, everyone, and see you next time. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.